It is the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, fortunately, in the providence of God, uh, the focus of chapter 4 at this point kind of switches uh, to the idea of the nearness of God. And so uh, this is really, in many ways, an application of the reality of uh, Jesus as Emmanuel. So that's, that's our theme for the, uh, the Not Really Advent Advent uh, series. <laughs> It's merely a continuation of what we were doing anyway, but it works, so uh, God is good. Um, Let's read 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in Christ there is fullness of grace and truth. And this morning, we need that fullness of grace and truth. And so give us Jesus, whom you have sent, so that we might have that very same grace and truth from the Scriptures. Do this so that we can see your glory, so that we might love and delight in you more. In the name of Jesus, our Emmanuel, amen. So uh, Wednesdays in the morning, this year anyway, uh, I get to bring Eli to speech therapy, and I get to sit for half an hour in the lobby while he does his speech therapy. And so this week it was very distracting for me. Uh, Usually I read something tied to my sermon. And so I'm trying to read my commentary on Philippians chapter 4 in this. And they've got a bunch of kids for whom it was the special treat of them decorating the Christmas tree in the lobby. Uh, I guess that's still permitted, and that's a good thing, okay? But it was interesting, while I'm, watch, I'm listening to these kids, and uh, they're getting some instruction from uh, the primary administrative assistant and all of this, but there's one kid, and there's always going to be the one kid, right? The one kid who, keeps, who can't stop talking. And uh, this child, who can't stop talking, starts uh, talking about the Christmas story and the, the birth story. Except that what he's saying is that this was a bunch of stuff made up by drunk nuns. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, do I say something? I'm on foreign territory, so to speak. I don't know how far I can push the boundaries of what I say to this child. And and I said, maybe you shouldn't believe everything you've been told. And he was a little taken aback that someone would, would sort of uh, interject something from this. Uh, and I said, you happen to be speaking to a pastor, or in the presence of a pastor. And so, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm like, nothing to be sorry about. Because I didn't want him to think that I'm saying this because I'm offended. I, I'm saying this, I said to him, I, I happen to know a little bit more about this subject than you. <laughs> And I left it at that, wondering if he would ask more, because I, you know I've got an audience of administrative officials here, and I don't want to be cast out of the uh, the lobby of the school. <laughs> Christmas is a confusing time for a lot of people, in a lot of ways. 
but it's about a great thing. It's about the fact of, uh, of Emmanuel being born, uh, that God has come near, uh, that He is with us. Uh, but is there more to Christmas than sort of mere sentimentality? And I, and I think there is, based on this passage, precisely because Paul presses this issue close to home, the reality that the Lord is near. I mean, if you read through this paragraph, comes out of nowhere, honestly. He's just been talking about conflict, and so it makes almost no sense, so to speak, for him to talk about rejoicing, for him to talk about being anxious, uh, for him to talk about reasonableness. But right at the heart of this paragraph is the thing that I believe connects this whole paragraph together and kind of makes it fit within the whole of the letter of Philippians, and that is the fact that this phrase, the Lord is near. don't know why they translate it at, at hand, but at near is probably a better way of thinking about this word that shows up in the Greek. But there's a question that automatically should come to many of our minds. What does it mean that the Lord is near? Is he speaking about uh, the Lord is near with respect to time, because that is uh, one way that one can think about this word, meaning, is Jesus coming back soon? Okay. And for some people, that's a very attractive interpretation of this particular word, because we, and at the end of chapter 3, verse 20 and following, we do have a focus upon the coming of the, of the Lord to sustain and encourage his people in the midst of persecution. And so uh, that is a, a possible understanding of what Paul is saying right here in the middle of this paragraph. The Lord is coming soon. But also this word leads to the idea, or can lead to the idea, that he is physically, or not physically, but he is present. He is amongst them. He's not far off like Caesar was far off in Rome. Jesus is not hiding in heaven, but rather Jesus is amongst them. He still is Emmanuel. I appreciate Sinclair Ferguson, whose notes that Paul was deliberately ambiguous. I can roll with that. Because it means that Paul implies that both of these things are true and that both of these have bearing upon the life of the Philippian church in the midst of their particular circumstances. Jesus is the Emmanuel. He has come in his incarnation, the first advent. He remains amongst us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we await his coming again in the consummation and his second advent. And so he's already near to us spiritually through our union with Jesus Christ for those who believe, and he is not yet physically present yet until the second coming. So we've got both of those dynamics that are at work as we seek to understand and apply this little sentence. Why do I say both? We see things like, not just what we, we saw in 3.20, but we also see this promise in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Not simply till next week to the apostles, but he is with his people until the end of the age. 
But as we hear these commands that are going to be issued precisely because of the nearness of Jesus to us, I, I want us to hear these things as directional, meaning this is the direction that you should be moving as you mature in your faith. Uh, not, this is something you should have arrived at, and therefore, since you haven't, you should feel all kinds of guilt and condemnation. Okay? It, it is easy to read these things and go, I'm not there yet, and to feel like you stink. <laughs> but honestly, it's easy to feel that way. And I want us to remember that this is, Paul is not trying to, to condemn them. He's, he's not trying to poke a finger in their eye. Oh, what, what he's trying to do is trying to encourage them and to apply their theology, but he recognizes that that is a process that is going to take time, that there's a, a, an increasing growth in these, these things. So if you're one of those people like me who has not arrived, um, on the one hand, be patient with yourself, but on the other hand, persevere. Okay? So I think that applies to everyone in this room. All right? So the first kind of aspect of this that I want us to think about is kind of reflected in the question, how should I respond to my circumstances if the Lord is near? And Paul starts off with, rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, he's giving them this command because he then says, I say it again, rejoice. In case you missed it the first time, rejoice. What, you didn't get that? Rejoice. He's intending for them to experience, wants them to experience uh, an abiding and continuing joy. That Jesus has come, in a sense, in part, for our joy. We think of... Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer number one. The chief end of, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and what? Yeah, joy is right in the middle of that word. To enjoy him forever. So Jesus came in part for our joy. And sometimes we have a hard time experiencing that. Sometimes we have a hard time believing that. They were to be glad. They were to rejoice exceedingly, is another way this could be translated. They were to rejoice exceedingly as individuals as well as a church, both the personal and the public. And I, I think of this in terms of, I guess, games, baseball games, World Series games. Thinking of how when the Red Sox won, I had personal joy. And I was not the only one. There were other people that had personal joy about this. And unfortunately, I couldn't join them in Boston for the parade. But we see that we should experience both of these things, ideally. Um, joy alone as well as joy together. It's not one or the other. It's intended to be both. But what's fascinating, of course, is that when Paul writes this, rejoice in the Lord always to these people, first off, remember, he writes from prison. I'm not sure that prison would be one of the places that I would be filled with joy, and yet Paul in the first chapter of this letter is filled with joy. 
even though he's in prison. And not only is Paul in prison, but he's writing to this church in Philippi that has circumstances which include but are not limited to persecution and conflict. Those were church-wide experiences. We don't know about the personal experiences. Certainly there were some who had illnesses, who had cancer, who were poor. Some of them, of course, were slaves, and they may not have had a good master. And so there's all kinds of circumstances that kind of go into the part of what is going on in the life of these Christians in Philippi, just as there are all kinds of things going on in your lives. As you deal with your own loneliness as you deal with your own uh, frenetic activity because work is overwhelming, uh, as you deal with the sadness of, of what has just gone on at work, all sorts of things. This command to joy is not absent of those circumstances, but is meant to be in those circumstances. You see, our joy is, is not in our ever-changing circumstances, uh, but our joy is intended to be in Jesus himself, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so part of what Paul is calling us to is a, a, is a good phrase in our relational wisdom course uh, that some of us are going through, that idea of God-awareness. And what Paul is, is wanting for them to do is to be aware of God in the midst of their circumstances, to view their circumstances through the lens of Jesus Christ as opposed to viewing Jesus through their circumstances. Tim Keller puts it this way, I am going to judge my circumstances by Jesus' love, not Jesus' love by my circumstances. If we're judging his love by our circumstances, it becomes a game of he loves me, he loves me not. And today life is going well, so Jesus must love me. But tomorrow my car might not start and my computer may fail and I might lose all the work that I did this past month and Jesus therefore does not love me. Instead, we're to understand that despite my circumstances, the love of God is sure, that Romans 8 kind of thing, that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so though life is difficult, I'm still in the love of God through my union with Jesus Christ, and it's going to be okay. It just doesn't feel okay. At the moment. So, so sort of bringing a, a God awareness back into the midst of our circumstances. I was texting Charles Garland yesterday because I picked up some food uh, at a restaurant and they, there's the Alabama Georgia game. And he, of course, is a big Georgia fan. And I initially said, Oh, look, they're ahead. So I texted him, Breathe, Charles, breathe, because I know that he can never rest until the game is over because he thinks that Georgia will find a way to lose. And if you know the rest of the story, they did. <laughs> and so it would not be wise for me to text Charles back and say, Rejoice in the Lord always, Charles. <laughs> but he did have God awareness. Because he texted me back, and I said something else to him said something along, sorry, condolences, whatever. And he texted back, 
Those whom he loves, he chastens. <laughs> so Charles was trying to apply his theology in the midst of the disappointment that he was experiencing over a silly game that was not too silly to him. I had no dog in the race. But we see this in Scripture. For instance, in Habakkuk 3, and we're, we're actually going to study Habakkuk in uh, February and March. But in, in, in chapter 3, there's this litany of even though these horrible things happen, even though there is a drought and the crops don't come in and the locusts have eaten what little had, had, did show up, in spite of all these horrible things that happen, it says in verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take my joy in the God of my salvation. And so Habakkuk recognizes there's something, there's a larger picture that's going on, and he wants to remember the larger picture that this unfortunate circumstance is in. And so that he continues to rejoice in God. And there's a, probably an aspect of how Habakkuk is influencing Paul as he writes this. Our joy is to be in the Lord, as Paul says. Our, our joy in Jesus, kind of to repeat what I said before, is not intended to be limited to our public worship service, but it's intended to be a sort of a constant within our lives. It is meant to be something that kind of overflows into the rest of our experience. And the only way that happens, I believe, is if we meditate on who God is. If we meditate or chew over in our minds what Jesus has done for us. If we meditate or, or, or chew over the love of God experienced, uh, that we have experienced to produce this God-honoring joy. Some of you are familiar with the name George Miller. Some, sometimes you might be tempted to pronounce it Mueller, uh, but it is Miller. He was German, but he lived in England, and he ran orphanages, among other things. And he thought it was his great task every day to find his delight in God. And how he did it was reading the Scriptures, meditating upon the Scriptures, upon the character of God, so that God was his delight, God was his joy, even though circumstances might be hard. Doing this, I think, is what puts us back into the story of redemption, okay, so that we begin to see our lives in light of this greater story that God tells in Scripture of, of creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation glory. Puts us back into that so that we recognize that what I'm experiencing now, which may not be pleasant, is but temporary. And it's a part of how God is trying to make me someone different. And so we recognize that the joyful Christ, the joyful Jesus, is near to us by virtue of our union with him, so we can be both sorrowful, but also rejoice in him, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 6. It was not a either or, either you're sorrowful or you're joyful, but he says, sorrowful yet also rejoicing. It's hard to do apart from grace. I dare, nay, dare say impossible to do apart from grace. 
But we recognize other passages like Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near, not to the people who have it all together, but the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. In a similar fashion, we see the union with Christ unfolded this way in Acts chapter 9 when, when uh, Paul is going down, as Saul is going down the road to Damascus, uh, Damascus, and he meets Jesus, and Jesus says, Why are you persecuting me? And the recognition that we're, we are so wrapped up in Jesus through our union that, that he identifies with us, and he is with us in the midst of our sorrowing, and he is with us to produce joy in spite of our sorrowing. And so our sorrows don't mean that God is against us, uh, but rather that he is for us since he already gave his son for us. So despite your circumstances, first off, rejoice in the Lord because he's near. He's close by. He's at hand. Now there's a second kind of question that emerges to me as I work through this passage, and that is how should I respond in conflict if the Lord is near? And here's the confession that all of us should understand is that conflict generally brings out not the best, but the worst in us. Okay. Whether it's you and your spouse, uh, you and a sibling, uh, you and a classmate or a co-worker or someone else, conflict tends to reveal the worst in us. And in the midst of conflict, we can lose our God awareness rather quickly. We talked a bit about that last week with the, the concept, the bio, biochemistry, uh, biochemistry concept of being hijacked. Tempers flare. Rash words can be spoken. Heels can be dug in. And as we saw in Florida last week, a couple of times, sometimes shots can be fired at hospitals and home improvement centers because conflict has gotten out of control. It's in the midst of this, which we saw with Judea and Syntyche, I believe, that Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This is really sort of a gentle command. It's the way he structures it. Okay? It's not the usual um, grammatical imperative but it's a command nonetheless. Reasonableness has the idea, really, of, of being equitable, being firm, but mild or gentle. So not harsh, not contentious, um, not wishy-washy either. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it, it's, it's living in the middle between the extremes of our responses, you know? Uh, gentleness is another way that this word is, is often translated. Uh, and I, when I think of gentleness, I probably should think along the lines of someone who is quick to listen, someone who neither demands their own way or just caves in, but someone who listens with an ear towards where's the common ground and where can there be principled compromise. Perhaps... Um, your experience is similar to my experience. In the middle of the conflicts, I can, be, I can build walls. I'm not talking about real walls. I'm talking about emotional walls. 
You know, if you and I are fighting Jack, okay, I wouldn't, I, I'm saying this because Jack and I wouldn't fight. Because he's a father to me, okay? I'm not going to argue with Jack. I'm going to listen to Jack. So if you have something to say to me, maybe you should say it through Jack. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But if, if Jack and I are arguing, I'm, I'm, I'm probably to try and protect Jack because I know my own wretchedness and my own problems with anger. I'm going to try and build a wall so that my anger will not break out against Jack. <laughs> but Jack might keep poking at that wall. He might keep pounding at that wall. And a brick might fall out of that wall and onto my toe, and I'm going to break out of that wall. And I will reach a point, unfortunately, where now my, my anger goes, and now Jack wants to build a wall to protect himself from me. But that's how it often goes. This is what often takes place. And so uh, Paul is, is pleading with them, for gentleness, for reasonableness in the midst of their conflicts. He recognizes, I believe, that we can suffer from spiritual amnesia, that we can forget that Jesus is near, that we can forget that he's close, and we can begin to fight as though we're orphans and no one's going to stick up for us, and so we have to do it for ourselves. And it's search and destroy. And the more that we're focused on our own kingdom, the less reasonable we will tend to be in the midst of conflict. And so I can hear Paul saying to them, be gentle or reasonable because Jesus is coming soon and you're going to have to give an account to Jesus when he comes soon of how you played out in that conflict. He's encouraging them to be, to be gentle not only for that reason, but because the gentle Jesus is present with us through our union with him in order to help us to be gentle like he is. And so it's, it's putting off the angry old man like Cain who wants to kill his brother and putting on Jesus who wants to reconcile with his enemies. We can be gentle because Jesus is near to bring out his good purposes through our circumstances. That trusting him to continue to be at work even in this junk that we hate. So, in conflict, be gentle because the Lord is near. Then there's the third one. Paul brings up. What are we to do when anxiety rises? How should we respond since the Lord is near? Let's talk about the reality of anxiety. 
It's interesting because the word uh, that is translated anxious here is one that we saw earlier in uh, chapter 2, verse 20, with regard to Timothy. Uh, There is no one who is concerned for your welfare like he is. And so that word that Paul uses both in chapter 2 and here in chapter 4 can be translated as either concern or anxiety. And those two words are are really connected in a lot of ways. Um, In some ways, anxiety is concern gone wild, you know, particularly when you have no control of it. I've entered in a new world of, of anxiety with, as a parent. You know, my kids are getting older, and now I lay awake at night worrying about things. It's very helpful, most helpful, okay? Uh, but you worry about, are they going to be all right? Are they, are they learning their, uh, their schoolwork sufficiently so that when it's time for them to leave, they'll thrive and prosper, or if they're going to flounder for a while until they figure it out? If, if their faith is going to matter when they leave the house. All of those sorts of things. So, we come to a passage like 1 Corinthians 7, and it's really interesting to me because this word pops up a billion times in 1 Corinthians uh, 7, 32 and following. I, I want you, he says, to be free from anxieties. The married man is anxious about the things of the Lord. Now, I would have translated that because I don't think the, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. I think he's concerned about the things of the Lord. And so they, they translated anxieties all the way through this text, and I think there are positive things there that are legitimate concerns that don't necessarily fall into the category of anxiety. Anxiety usually deals with present or anticipated difficulties. Some of them are difficulties that may never actually take place. But in your head, they are brought into the present, and you have anxiety. And some of you uh, have confessed online that you deal with your anxieties by cleaning. Some of you uh, zone out in front of the TV. Some of you may eat. Some of you may look to porn or shopping, or any other number of things. When we feel anxiety, we look for release, and we can look for release in all the wrong places. Even when it's a good thing. If you're, if you're running from your anxiety to it instead of Jesus, it becomes a not-so-good thing. Okay. Paul here, I think, is addressing anxiety over specific issues. Okay? Now, we also recognize, or I also recognize, the, the, the reality of mood disorder called anxiety, which is different. It's sort of a generalized thing. It's not about, it's not, I'm worried about whether my car will start next week when I get home. It's being worried about sort of everything, and yet nothing specific. And a lot of people struggle with that kind of anxiety. And it's an anxiety that we should continue to follow the instructions Paul is going to give here. I'm not saying don't do that. But some of those people also need medication because there's a biochemical reality that's going on in them that 
probably needs help, in addition to the spiritual help they should also seek in this text. Okay. Because we recognize from Proverbs 12 that anxiety in a man's heart, or a woman's heart, weighs him or her down. But a good word makes them glad. So when you're anxious, you're worn down, you're worn out, and you're essentially not much good to anyone. And so Paul says in this contrast here, be anxious for nothing in everything by prayer. And so nothing, everything. Anxious for nothing. Praying, praying rather, about everything. That's his prescription. If you are anxious, you should pray. Which is a very hard thing for us to do sometimes when we're anxious. Anxiety has been likened to a rocking chair because there's lots of movement but no progress. And that's exactly what anxiety does. You you spend hours thinking about something but there's no progress because really ultimately there's no solution Uh, that you're able to come up with because it's something about which you actually have no control. And that's part of the issue. Prayer is important precisely because it takes our concerns and tries to move them out of our heads and into the hands of someone who can actually do something about these things because he has control and that someone, of course, is Jesus. In his book, The Concept of Anxiety, the uh, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard noted that anxiety is a barometer of whether I'm trusting in God or I'm trusting in myself. The more anxious you are, the more you're trusting in yourself as opposed to Jesus about that particular thing. Why does the nearness of Jesus matter here? Because Jesus is near in order to work in the circumstances that are causing us so much concern. And so part of what praying is, is recognizing that Jesus is the only one who can actually do these things, asking him and trusting him to do these things. And so it's an expression, um, not, not to inform God about the problem, but it's an expression that you are entrusting this problem to him. Because you believe he is in control of all things. For instance, Heidelberg Catechism number 28. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? Answer. We can be patient in adversity thankful and prosperity, and with a view of the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are completely in his hand, that without this they cannot so much as move. And that is exactly where Jesus went in Matthew 6 when talking about the anxieties of the people listening to him. The providence of God. The faithful love of God, which was at work in the caring for the birds and the flowers of the fields. And so Paul advises them, 
that to make prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And so he kind of piles up all of these nouns. Prayer is a word basically for that general communication with God. Talk to God. Prayer is not some magical thing. It's just talking with God. But that word supplications has, has is, is kind of a subset of that conversation with God in which you're expressing your needs to God. You're laying those needs out to Him. This is where I need Jesus today. This is where I need help. Please help me. We see a similar thing in Psalm 55. Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. Repeated as well, or kind of taken in First Peter chapter 5, cast all your anxiety on the Lord. Why? Because He cares for you. You're not speaking to someone who's disconnected to you. You're not speaking to someone who, is, who has no thoughts or feelings of you, but rather you, you are sharing these prayer requests, these burdens with one who has died for you. How much more do you think He cares about these things that are harassing your soul like flies harass a horse or a human, depending on where the fly happens to be flying. But he says, lay them out with thanksgiving. Some of us are always asking and never thanking. Children can be that way, and some adults can be that way too. Uh, They're always asking for something and never thanking for the provision they've received in the past. We are to be grateful for the past and present grace that we have received, even as we're trusting for the future grace that we need with this particular problem that we've been churning over in our minds. Paul says that when we are... um, turning our anxiety into prayer, that the peace of God will guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. They will receive the peace of God that has been purchased by Jesus, the Prince of Peace. One of the reasons that uh, Philippi felt secure as a Roman colony was because it also housed a Roman garrison. And if you're worried about the barbarians, it feels good to have a Roman garrison in your town, right? Paul wants them to understand that not only is there a Roman garrison to guard against the barbarians, but Jesus is their their garrison against the anxieties that wage war upon their soul, upon their hearts, and upon their minds so that they won't be weighed down in heart and they won't be preoccupied in mind. Jesus is close as this garrison. Jesus protects us as we pray for his help in the midst of that particular affliction. And so when anxieties rise, pray because the Lord is near. To the Philippians, Paul said that God's will for us in Christ Jesus is to rejoice, pray, and give thanks, which is remarkably similar to what he says to the Philippians right here. 
We can give thanks without ceasing. We can rejoice and pray without ceasing precisely because Jesus has drawn near. Maybe that's the struggle that we have. Maybe it's we don't believe he's drawn near. I know towards the second half of this week, I, I wished that he not only spoke in Scripture, but that I could sit down over a pint and talk to Jesus and he'd say something back to me because I felt like I needed some direction on something. I was feeling kind of lost and um, confused, and I wished Jesus would just tell me. So we don't, he's not near in that sense, but he is near. And he does counsel us by his word. And that's part of the importance of Christmas. And that's part of what we need to tell ourselves as we preach the gospel to ourselves on a regular basis is that he is near. He's not far off. He's near because he cares. He's not far off because he's negligent and forgetful. Christmas reminds us that Jesus still is Emmanuel, God with us. And we we need to remember this nearness precisely because we do live in a world that is plagued by sin and misery. And we experience these difficult circumstances. We experience conflict. We experience the anxiety on a daily basis. And so awareness that Jesus is near can help us to be joyful, gentle, prayerful. And when you, when you think about it, those are pretty great gifts. Don't you wish you had more of those? I know I do. So let's pray. Father, a passage like this usually helps us realize how weak our Christianity is, not how great we are, but how much in need we are of Jesus to continue to change us how much we are in need of your grace and your mercy. And we thank you that there is an abundant supply of grace and mercy available from Jesus. That though he is near to us, he is also seated on the throne of grace and willing to help us. And so, Father, uh, help us to, to really understand that so that we turn to him when we experience these things. That it becomes more and more natural for us to do this. Because it is, in fact, contrary to fallen man to be turning to Jesus for anything. And so rewire us. Remake us. Renew us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.